So I want to thank you for being here and worshiping with us today and getting your eyes off of just yourself, but onto something higher, onto something greater than yourself. We are, we just started last week into a new sermon series, um, and this is called Old School. Okay, the whole idea is we wanted to spend some time in the Old Testament. A lot of the time we spend uh, studying teachings of Jesus and studying the epistles of the New Testament. We spend a little bit less, and I I don't think our church is unique in that sense. Um, a, A lot of people find the Old Testament to be tough to tackle. Okay, and so we wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, going through some Old Testament scriptures and really dissecting them. I'll say this, um, we can learn from all scripture. All scripture is, is we believe, God-breathed. We believe it's from God, but sometimes the Old Testament specifically can be hard to kind of break down. How do I get something out of this? So we're going to talk a little bit about that and, and go into some scripture today that, that maybe is unfamiliar to some folks and, and try to glean some wisdom, glean some knowledge out of it. I'm going to say from the outset, this is going to be a little bit more teachy. Do we have anybody who's attended seminary or theology school of any kind before? Okay, so so if you've ever wanted to, this is going to be more of a, a seminary class today than it is going to be preachy. So it's going to be more teachy, less preachy, but hopefully we can get some out of it that we can apply to our lives. So, so try to just stick with me through that. Uh, a couple of f- uh, facts at a glance about the Old Testament. I just want to kind of give us some ba- background because we, we as Christians follow, um, uh, we, we, we read scripture and it has two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as I said, we tend to stay focused on the New Testament because it tells us about Jesus and it tells us about his death, his resurrection. And so it can be a little bit easier, but I want to give a couple facts. Okay, There are 39 books in the Protestant Old Testament. I say that because if you come from a Catholic background, you've encountered more books than that. If you come from an Orthodox background, and there's several different uh, kinds of Orthodox denominations, you have even more than that. Okay, so there's there are some books that the pros, uh, that the Protestants don't include in our Old Testament canon. Uh, it doesn't mean the Protestants don't think that they're of any use. We just don't believe them to be canonized. And usually, even in Orthodox traditions, they they separate them as apocryphal. So what we call the apocrypha, you might know that if you were um, if raised Catholic or, or know anything about Catholic canon of Scripture, there are separate books that are called the apocrypha. So in our Bibles, if you open up your Bible and it is a Protestant Bible, it probably has 39 books in the Old Testament. I am saying there is an unknown number of authors. I say that because it's dicey to try to say how many authors there were in the Old Testament. And you might go to one website that says it was this many authors. You go to another one, it says this. Scholarship is constantly changing on who the authors were for specific books and also how many. So a good, for instance, is the book of Isaiah. Most of us would probably think, oh, book of Isaiah, one author, Isaiah. Uh, A lot of modern scholarship says that there were probably more than one because there were certain sections of Isaiah that are written in a totally different uh, style than the others and and present totally different uh, narratives or, or prophetic utterances. So we sometimes look at things, and I, I'm just saying all of that to say we don't know how many people wrote the Old Testament, but a lot did. Um, also, the Old Testament is divided into about five different literary genres. You can actually break it out into more than that, but we're going to talk about five. Historic narrative. That would be things like Pastor Terry talked about last week. If you were here, Pastor Terry talked about David and Goliath. Uh, that comes from a book of the Bible of Samuel that is a narrative book. It talks about history. 
Then we have Hebrew law. And we're going to be talking a little bit about Hebrew law today. Uh, And believe it or not, we can still learn things for our lives today, even from the Hebrew law. Um, And those are books of the Bible, and a lot of these are the, the driest books. Okay, these are the books where it has a lot of numbers and it has a whole lot of don't do this and do this. And so those are the books that a lot of people avoid, honestly, but we can still get a lot from them. Then there's prophetic books. We talk about books like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, where it was actually written to the people of Israel and even to us today to actually foretell events, to to talk about what God's word for the people was then and also for us today. prophetic books. Then there's poetry books, books like the book of Psalms and also the book of the Song of Solomon. These are poetic books. And then there's wisdom literature. We, we can think about books like uh, the book of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom literature. Now, why do I bring that up? It's because all of these need to be read a little bit differently if you're going to understand the Old Testament. Um, and, and if you read things completely out of context, uh, I know some people like to, if, if they want to hear something from God, they'll just, you know, wear a blindfold and point at a scripture. But the, the thing about reading in an informed way is understanding that there's different literary genres that are meant to accomplish different things. So for instance, poetry is read different than history, correct? We read poetry a little bit differently. Poetry sometimes uses um, uh, superlative terms and uses uh, exaggeration, right, to make a point. So in, in a song, you might say, I love you to the moon and back. Now, if you read that in Scripture and you says, oh, God loves us to the moon and back, and you made that a scientific textbook, you might be a little bit off in your interpretation. So sometimes we read things in context of what the literary genre is, what the history is, and then we read them in context of the book itself. Um, If sometimes you have a a problem of when you read Scripture, understanding what to get out of it. Um, actually, the United Methodist web, uh, the umc.org has some really great resources on it about Bible study, and they have four questions to ask whenever you're studying any kind of scripture. Again, this is from umc.org, but these are four questions to answer when studying scripture. One is this, what did this passage mean to its original hearers? So the first people that were studying a passage, what's the first thing? And if you want, you could even take a picture of this with your phone. These are awesome things just for, for personal study. If you're looking at scripture and you're like, God, what am I supposed to get out of this? What, what are you trying to say in this scripture to me today? One, did, what did this mean to its original hearers? Two, what part does it play in the Bible's total witness? Here's what that means. In the whole context, the whole of what scripture is trying to communicate, what does this scripture mean or how does it fit in? Okay, that can help be illuminating. The third is this, what does God seem to be saying to my life? This is where it gets personal. To my life, my community, my world through this passage. And I believe that every scripture can mean something for the, histor- the, the historical people who were receiving that word then, but it can also mean something for us today. And fourth, this is what I like because the Bible, if we're going to read something, we want it to change us, right? We don't want to stay the same. When I read scripture, I want it to make me a different person. I want the word of God through the spirit of God, which is already inside me, to change me through scripture. So 
Four is this, what changes should I consider making as a result of my study? So God, how do you want this to change my life or what I'm doing, how I'm living out my every day? So those are four questions. I just wanted to throw those out there and I'll return to them throughout our study in the Old Testament because we're gonna go through some scriptures and you might be like, well, okay, what does that apply to me? How do, how do I actually do anything with this ancient document that is the Bible, um, because it all really does speak, and I believe the Word of God is alive today and can change our hearts. Uh, I'm going to jump right into a scripture, and we're going to be studying a little bit of Hebrew law. Doesn't that sound exciting? Can I get an amen? Amen. I know, it sounds like Hebrew law, how is this going to make sense for me today in my life when I'm just struggling to make everything work in my own reality? Well, we'll talk about that. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy, and I'm going to read some selected verses. This is from Deuteronomy 29. Uh, And just so you can kind of get an idea of what's happening in Deuteronomy, it's basically a series of sermons that Moses gives. Um, And this is is basically before they are entering into the promised land. If you know about Old Testament history, um, Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, okay? Led them out, and they wandered around the desert for 40 years. And they did a lot of complaining, but they were all being led into the promised land. And so Moses gave a series of sermons, and Deuteronomy captures these. And these are basically telling people, this, as the people of Israel, here are your values, Here's what you stand for. Here is how you want to live, what you stand for, what you stand on. And I'm going to start in Deuteronomy 29. And this is key because it's towards the end of Deuteronomy. This is some of the last stuff that Moses is sharing to the people of Israel, so it's probably pretty important. Moses summoned, and this is Deuteronomy 29. I'm going to read two verses from the beginning, two through four, and then I'm going to pick it up again in verse nine. Moses summoned all of Israel, saying to them, You've seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, his servants, and all his land, the great trials you, your eyes witnessed, those awesome signs and wonders. But until this very moment, the Lord hasn't given you insight to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Skip into verse 9. So when you keep the words of this covenant and do them so that you can uh, so when so then keep the words of this covenant and do them so that you can succeed in all you do. We're going to go back to that word covenant because it's hugely important. Right now, all of you are in the presence of the Lord your God, the leader of your tribes, your elders, and your officials, all the Israelite males, your children, your wives, and the immigrants who live with you in your camp, the ones who chop your wood and who draw your water, ready to enter into, uh, into the Lord your God's covenant. And remember, they're about to enter into the promised land ready to enter into your God's covenant and into the agreement that your Lord God is making with you right now. That means the Lord will make you his own people right now. He will be your God just as he promised you and just as he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I'm not making this covenant and this agreement with you alone, but also those standing here with us right now before the Lord your God and also with those who aren't here with us right now. You know firsthand how we used to live in Egypt and how you pass right through the nations that you pass how we pass right through the nations that you pass through. You saw horrific things, the filthy idols made of wood and stone, silver and gold that they had with them. Make sure there isn't one among you right now, male or female, clean or tribe, 
a clan or tribe whose mind is turning from being with the Lord our God in favor of going to these nations, gods. Make sure there isn't any root among you that is sprouting poisonous, sprouting poison and bitterness. Now, as I said, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses is delivering and trying to establish a value system for the people of Israel and saying, this is what we're about. This is what we're about. And this passage is all about this word covenant. Covenant is kind of an archaic word. Um, who's familiar with that word? Covenant. Okay, it's, it's a biblical word. I would really love to give you an updated word and give you a word that is more um, culturally appropriate for us, but here's why I can't. Because our modern world, our, our culture that we live in today is not a covenant culture. Covenant relationship is so radically different than how most people in our world do relationships that it actually kind of sounds scary to people. But if we can get a hold of this important idea of covenant relationship, I really believe this, and I totally believe this 100%, it could transform every relationship you have. It can transform your marriage relationship. It can transform your friendships. It can transform your family relationships to see and understand and actually put into action what covenant relationship looks like. Now, the first thing to get about covenant relationship is that it's intimate. One thing to notice as you're going through this passage of Scripture is that it uses a lot of personal possessive pronouns. Personal possessive pronouns mean, it would be like saying this, my girl, my guy. I, my Johnny, my Susie. So when, when, when we hear God saying that you are my people and I am your God, that's a personal possessive pronoun, and that's saying that this is an intimate relationship, that this covenant relationship that God is in with his people Israel is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship and it's intimate. That means there's intimate love in it. You're my girl, my guy, my Johnny, my Susie. You wouldn't say that about people you're not close to, right? You'd only say it about people you're intimately um, involved with. Now, we also, though, here's the thing. Covenant relationship also comes with terms and conditions. Terms and conditions. Now, we have terms and conditions in our modern day. Do we always read the terms and conditions? Yeah, check a box, right? Um, there, was, there was an interesting study that was done by a professor uh, from Michigan State where he invited students to sign up for a new, and by the way, it was fake, a fake social media platform called NameDrop. And to, to sign up for this app, the students, and there was about uh, 600 in this study that actually did this, they had to fill out, they had to basically sign uh, the terms and conditions. Uh, and like a lot of terms and conditions, it was all legalese. It was hard to read. It was long to read. But there was something that was unique about the terms and conditions in this study, which was that they actually promised your firstborn child if you signed the terms and conditions. So what they had was several hundred uh, college students sign away their firstborn child just so that they could get to use this app. Must be a good app, right? Or maybe we just don't read terms and conditions to, the, uh, to that degree these days. We just, we don't think about terms and conditions. But see, what, what makes covenant relationship, as we see in Scripture, different is that it's absolutely loving, completely intimate, but it actually is backed up by vows and accountability. It's backed up by vows and accountability. Covenant relationships say, I am willing to give up some of my personal freedom. I'm willing to give up some of my 
independence to be true to this relationship. I'm willing to be accountable of how I act. I'm willing to be accountable of how I live to stay true to this covenant relationship. Um, That is so different than how people do relationships, isn't it? Nowadays in our culture, um, we live in a culture where the happiness of the individual self is primary. Happiness of the individual self is the primary thing, and anything that conflicts with the happiness of the individual self is a problem that I don't need to deal with. Um, so we, we see a lot of uh, young people more and more are uh, saying, not that they're atheists, but they're, they're called nuns. That means uh, not affiliated with any organized religion. So what I've heard a lot of people say, um, even people that I knew that I grew up with in church, uh, very few of them have out and out said, you know, I just reject God completely. I reject spirituality completely. More and more of them have said this, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but uh, I don't like to go to church. You know, I, I'm not a Christian, but I'm very spiritual. And, and one, you know, I understand that's where, and maybe f- there's a lot of people in this room that could be in that place. But, but understand what, what some of that is saying is that I want God, but I want God on my terms. I want God, but I want God without the accountability to, to uh, a book like the script, Holy Scriptures. I want God without accountability to other people in my lives that can speak into my life and, and tell me um, where I'm falling short. It's, it's basically, I want God, but I don't want to be accountable to God. And, and you know what that is? And that we do this with our relationships with people, too. We basically tell people, I want to be in relationship with you as long as you fulfill my needs. But once you stop fulfilling my needs, I, I want out. Okay? And so we have relationships that are more about the fulfilling of needs, personal self-needs, and once that is broke, broken down, we can just exit the relationship, right? That, that's most relationships. And you know what that is? That's a consumer relationship, right? That's a consumer relationship which says, I'm in this until it stops being fun for me right now. And that is so different than a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship says, I'm going to give up some of what I want for you, for the strength of this relationship. A covenant relationship turns the idea upside down. It says, I will remain committed to your happiness, your happiness, even if at this moment I'm not feeling completely fulfilled. That's a radical idea right now. It says, I will abide by my commitment to you regardless of how I feel at this moment. Now, it's a beautiful thing, but it takes two people to make a covenant relationship work, right? If one person tries to do that, if one person tries to say, I want to give my all so that you can have happiness, my ultimate goal is, is to serve you, but the other person says, well, great, my ultimate goal is to serve me too. That doesn't work so good. Hey, we got something in common. We both love me. That doesn't work. See, in fact, you know, on one level, that could just be exploitation in a relationship. On the worst, it could be an abusive relationship. When one person says, I'm going to give my all, and the other person says, I'm in it till it stops working for me. Now, some of the language of the Old Testament, I think, sometimes shocks us, um, especially when we, when we hear things about covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, I want to I read a verse. I didn't put this in our reading today, but verse 20 of, of this passage says something pretty harsh. And, put the, and these are words from the mouth of God. It says, the Lord won't be, and this is talking about people who don't fulfill their end of a covenant. And we're talking about our covenant relationship with God, so maybe this should worry us a little bit. It says, the Lord won't be willing 
willing to forgive that kind of person. Instead, the Lord's anger and passion will smolder against that person every curse. Now, now get this. We read earlier, it talked about blessings associated with the covenant. If you keep a covenant, you're supposed to receive the blessings. That means the good stuff. And if you break the covenant, you're supposed to receive the curses. That means everything the bad that comes with not obeying the covenant. And it says... Um, Every curse written out in this written in this scroll will stretch out over them, the people that break the covenant. And the Lord will wipe out their name from under the heavens. That doesn't sound like the God we talk about, is it? They didn't sing songs about the God who will smolder his wrath over you. Did you? I didn't hear that song. So, so next week, okay, Andy's got a new song in mind. It doesn't sound like it. So, so which is it? Is God's love unconditional or is it conditional? Is God's, is, is, is God's love law where we've got to abide by these commandments? If we don't, we're out. Or is it love, which means that, that, that he's just going to love us no matter what? Which one is it? See, this is a tension that actually plays out all throughout Scripture. You're going to find the same tension in every single book of the Bible from beginning to end. We read about God's, a God that demands holiness and a God that despises sin. And in the next breath, the very next breath, we read about a God who forgives no matter what. So which one is it? Because people tend to be... Uh, black and white thinkers, we tend to think this way or that way. We tend to want to land on one side or the other. Um, because of that seeming contradiction, most people fall on one side of this or the other. So what we do is if you find a lot of Christians you'll meet might find them, might be really conservative. They'll take a view that says that God is all about holiness. God is all about obedience. And he is all about punishing disobedience. So these folks are usually filled with all sorts of guilt. These people are usually filled with all sorts of judgment for other people, and nobody's quite good enough. And these people never quite feel the freedom of what it is to know the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Now, that's one side people fall on. On the other side, people might take a more liberal approach, and they say, God is just a God of love. He's just a God of love. He doesn't care what you do. He just says, I love you no matter what. He doesn't care about sin or how you live your life. Just know that you're loved no matter what. Well, these people never seem to experience the transformational power of God's holiness. See, both ways of viewing God, either like an angry judge or just a gentle friend who, who has no sense of justice, they're both unbiblical. Is God just or is he loving? The covenant that God made way back in the Old Testament has the answer. The covenant relationship really gives us the answer to this. Now, this passage in Deuteronomy, it's talking about a covenant made. Do you remember uh, a little earlier, it says, it says who God first made the covenant with. Did you hear that part? Who did God first make the covenant with? A Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this, this, so, so the covenant, he's talking about a covenant that's been going on for a while. When did God make this covenant, and what were the terms and conditions? Well, if we go back, and we're not going to read the whole scripture, but I want to paint a picture for you of Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham enters into a covenant with God. Where God tells Abraham, we're going to have a covenant relationship, me with you and with all of your ancestors. Your people will become my people and I'll become your God, that personal possessive pronoun relationship, okay? Now here's the crazy thing. I just want to paint a picture. And sorry, this is a little bit gory. 
I'm glad uh, my, my son Dashiell is such an animal lover, and he would hate this, this part of the scripture. Um, here's how they would do a covenant in those ancient times. What they would do is they would have two parties that are going to enter in the covenant, and they would take uh, animals, uh, usually some kind of livestock, and they would cut the animals in half, and they would set them on either side. They basically make kind of a hallway to walk down, and both sides would have to walk through this, and here's what they were saying. I know that's gruesome, but what they were saying is, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, if I, you know, if I break my part of the covenant, then, then I should be torn apart like these animals are torn apart. It was serious stuff. They're basically saying, I will die if I don't uphold my part of the covenant. Here's a crazy thing, and, and biblical scholars talk all about this. If you read any commentaries about the covenant that Abraham made, when, when, God, when, when Abraham set this all up, he thought for sure he would have to walk through. And a lot of times, the people who were the stronger ones in the covenant might not even walk through it. It was, it was just known that the weaker party was the one that was upholding their part of it and would be torn to pieces if they didn't uphold it. Well, guess what? In that scripture, Abraham did not walk through those animals. Guess who walked through? God walked through. God walked through the animals. So what does that mean? This is where we're actually understanding a little bit of, of their culture at the time. It tells us a whole lot about the great message of Scripture, which is this. God walked through and God said this. If this covenant is broken, I will be torn apart to make it right. I will be torn apart to make it right. God said that. God said, I am a, I'm a God who demands justice. I demand holiness. But if holiness is broken, I'll be torn apart to make it right. And we saw that happen. And this is what ties the, the scriptures together so beautifully. Like when you look at the Old Testament, and then you see it in light of all of history, and then you see it in light of hundreds of years later, when Jesus Christ... God in human form came, and he made good on that promise. Where Jesus Christ said, God is just. He's completely just. He, he cannot put up with broken sin, but he's also completely merciful. And so Jesus Christ became that curse. Jesus Christ became that tearing apart of God on the cross. And he said, I am 100% just, and I am 100% merciful. He was torn, across, torn apart for us, for our sins, for our transgressions. Jesus Christ became the curse of the broken covenant for us and restored us to God because of that. So, which one is it? Is God unconditionally loving or is he unconditionally just? Yes. Yes, he's unconditionally loving, and he's completely just, and he was torn apart for us. And what a beautiful picture of what a covenant relationship looks like. Is God unconditionally loving or just? He's both. This should change how we live. This should change how we look at our relationship with Jesus. Um, 
people, people who study motivation, uh, I, I, used, I used to have to listen to a lot of mo- motivational tapes because I was in sales. And I know it sounds corny. I was talking to Connor, uh, who played, plays violin with us here. Uh, we were talking about how we would have to listen to these corny motivational things all the time because we would have to get up and make phone calls every day and do this stuff. You know, what, 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 what is interesting to me is I think people are wrong about what they think motivates them or what motivates other people. People think money motivates, but it really doesn't. Um, I, I, I had a friend when I was in, I, I worked in uh, music retail for a long time, and uh, one of the guys who was the best salesman, he sold more than anybody and made more money than anybody, um, I, I once asked him what motivated him. And you know what motivated him? You'd think, oh, making, making the, big, the big, you know, checks and all of that. He had a son who was... Um, uh, uh, special needs uh, and, and really needed to live very close to Barnes Jewish Hospital. If he didn't, uh, it, there, there was a problem. He, he, he couldn't be too far. And for him, for his dad to basically keep his family close to there, he had to basically stay at the same place. Uh, that didn't usually happen unless you were producing a certain amount. So some people from the outside looking in would think that his motivation was to make a lot of money, to make a lot of sales so that he could, you know, um, have that bottom line. What his real motivation was, was his son. It was love, and love is really the greatest motivator. And so sometimes people think that fear is a great motivator, but it's not. Love is the greatest motivator. So, so what motivates us to live lives differently? It's this love, right? It's not this fear that eventually we're going to be tossed into some roaring lake of fire. It's that God was torn apart on our behalf. So even when we break the law, even when we sin, and, and, and we do, we fall short. God said, I will take that punishment upon myself because I love you unconditionally. I'm a just God. I, I, I want holiness. I want the best for your life. I want your life to be free of sin and all the traps and all the terrible things that comes with. But I also love you unconditionally, and I'll take that punishment on. And so the motivating factor is this un conditional, incredible, and reckless love of God that, 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 that Jesus said, I'll be torn apart so that you don't have to, so that you can live differently. I'm going to invite our band back up to the stage. Um, that was a lot of information, so I'm sorry. I told everybody I wasn't here to preach last week, so I'm going to preach twice as long, and I think I did. Um, what I want to do is I want to just have a moment uh, where we can just ask God, just everybody in your own spot, um, w- with the last question that I, t- I gave you, if you're studying scripture that seems a little bit, wh- what am I supposed to get out of this? The last question was, what changes should I consider making as a result of my study today? What changes should I consider making? And I want you to just, in, in, in your own space right now, we're going to close our eyes, and I want you to ask that of God. God, reveal to me this idea of covenant relationship. That is, that is completely intimate, but is also tied to accountability, that is also tied to being totally given up of your own independence, of your own needs. How can I apply this to my life? Maybe some people, it's, it's you need to apply this to your marriage. You need to apply this to your friendships or your relationships with your, with your children or your parents. Or perhaps this is just a moment where you have just seen the amazing love of Jesus Christ in a new way, that, that he gave himself up for you so that God can be 100% just but 
also 100% justifying. And maybe if this is the first time you've seen Jesus in that true light, maybe you just need to say yes to him today and say, I want to accept that. I want to live differently because of what you've done for me. So we're just going to have a moment and, and uh, after a moment, the band's going to sing him and invite us all to, to stand again to, to worship. But let's just take a moment here and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. How should I apply this idea, this covenant love into my life? thank you for your covenant love, that love that, that draws us near, Lord God, that draws us close to you, that covenant that you made with us that, that said that no matter what, you would always draw us close to you, God, that you would even pay the price for that brokenness in us. We thank you, Lord, for what Jesus has done for us. We celebrate it right now, Lord God. We thank you. We pray that you would just continue, even over this week, continue to reveal this covenant love to us in new ways. Bring us alive on the inside with the love of Jesus Christ. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.